Hello, and welcome to This Week, a podcast that brings you conversations about Africa in the news, from pop culture to politics, from the comical to the serious in all corners of Africa. We bring you controversial news and themes with a fresh, educational, informative, and diverse perspective, and telling long-standing beliefs and ways of thinking and doing things. My name is Violet, and I'll be your host for today. Make sure to subscribe to Leaders of Africa's This Week in your favorite podcast app and on YouTube. We are on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, and more. Finally, join our Discord community to continue the conversation. Hello, everyone. It's good to see you. How are you doing, Eva? Hey, I'm fine. Thank you. How are you? I'm wonderful. Thank you. Bida, it's good to see you today. What's on your mind? Just this past week on September 5th, there was a military coup in Guinea. Led by a section of the military, President Alpha Conde, or then President Alpha Conde, who had been in power since 2010, was overthrown. This story has many associated controversies, and we really need to back up a bit to really understand the context. First, the only reason that Conde was in power before the coup was that he changed the constitution back in 2020 to allow him to run for a third term. According to the most recent Afrobarometer survey in the country, the Conde position on a third term is unpopular. 76% prefer a two-term limit. The constitutional referendum in March did many things. It expanded the presidential term from five to six years. That's many years for one presidential term. And it also reset the current terms, right? So if you'd served two terms, you're back to zero terms. You can start all over. And what was also interesting about this reform is that Conde paired this with popular reforms such as equal rights in divorce and pro-youth overtures like lowering the parliamentary age. Now, the resetting of limits is nothing new. We see this in other countries, including Cote d'Ivoire. And in Guinea, the opposition, just like Cote d'Ivoire, boycotted the constitutional referendum. What you need to recognize is that there has always been significant polarization surrounding elections, as well as ethnic divisions in the country. Conde comes from the second largest ethnic group, the Malinke, whereas the opposition predominantly come from the Fula group. Interestingly, the general leading the coup, that is General Domboya, is from Conde's Malinke ethnic group. That said, the military coup comes over 10 years after the previous coup, which occurred in 2008. And unfortunately, there have been several successful coups and attempts in the last five years, including the successful coup in Mali back in May and the failed attempts in the Central African Republic, as well as Ethiopia. Very interesting, Peter, as you said. So what's being done about the coup? You know, the most recent Afrobarometer survey that was conducted in 2019 indicated that 77% of Guineans prefer democracy. So the coup seems to undermine the popular views on political institutions. And you know, the African Union and the economic community of West African states have norms against coups and have suspended the country, and like always, press for a return to civilian rule. Having seen this diplomatic approach many times and hearing analysts applaud regional organizations for their approach, it is very post hoc at this point. You know, there appears to be little ability to deter coups in a systematic way, even if there are less coups than in the Cold War era. Ultimately, there are no sanctions on the country and the leaders of the coups. In fact, 
Coup leaders always receive high-level delegations almost as a first step to recognition. Now, our Leaders of Africa Discord community debated coups last Thursday. Temitope Oluwume mentioned that there is a norm of coups in West Africa and a history of military influence in politics that plays a role. And Isaac Borte suggested that military coups are not welcome in any form and should not be welcome and that acting in the name of the quote-unquote people is disingenuous. And Tertullian indicated that coups reflect a broader concern with the use of force in a country. For my part, I agree with our Discord community members and also think that the African Union and ECOWAS must institute post-coup sanctions, including financial payments and long-term bans on figures participating in military coups from regional organization activities, or even a refusal to recognize a government or post in which leaders of a coup figure prominently. In my view, and I'm speaking in my opinion in this case, there must be a broader deterrent approach than some of the same old post-coup standard operating procedures. And I'm curious what all of you think. Peter, I'm going to push back a little bit about this. The government is about the people. It's not about regional actors. And the will of the people seems to be indicative of a broad-based support for the coup that took place in Guinea. Because when you reflect on the backdrop, the referendum that extended the time limit of the president in Guinea was an abuse of the will of the people, a gross manipulation of the wills of the people. And that was because my people felt helpless and the president was able to have his way because he was in charge of the institution, the entire institution in the country. He was able to manipulate them. So the people were helpless. African Union couldn't serve us. And there was an intervention. And when you see the medias, the videos of people celebrating the triumph of the coup, then you begin to understand that it is high time we started looking at the limitations of democracy in certain contexts, particularly where democratic institutions are weak. And the same thing is playing out in many other African countries. There was a time in Nigeria, people were calling for coup because the question that came coming to the mind of the majority of the people is that of what use is this democracy when the economic situation of people of the country was just going down the drain. When people go to university, they cannot get jobs. And people will tell you, if democracy cannot feed them, they got to look for alternative. And this is being realistic. And that's the central question that governance is bound to address. So when that is not the case in a democracy, people look for alternative because people are not fixated about the idea, about the fixatedness that this is the idealistic way of governance that we need to defend. They love democracy. But that was a data at a particular point in time. If you should survey the people, of Guinea now, maybe we get a different outcome. They may say, we love what is happening now because we're helpless when the man changed the limit, when he manipulated the process. And that is why we need to be realistic in this particular situation. And I should think that the leadership of the African Union recognizes this, that if they fail to go with the pulse of the majority, that is just working against the tide that may even make them irrelevant in the schemes of things. And I think what they can do is to work with the current leadership of the coup to transition into a democracy. That's an interesting point you raised there, Ghana. And I'm curious to know, Gloria, what do you think? 
Yeah, I tend to agree with Ghana, especially the last point that you made on working with the leaders of the coup to usher in a democracy as soon as possible. Because the thing with sanctions, especially when it comes to funds and resources, it's the innocent people who suffer. You know, when there are sanctions that are applied to a specific country because of a coup, make no mistake, the ordinary people are the ones who bear the brunt of those sanctions. And I I do understand that these regional bodies, there's an extent to which they don't know how much do we get involved in the matters of the country because it's a principle of sovereignty also. And it's not always easy. It's not always black and white, the extent to which this regional body can intervene into these countries. And so that's why they wait for when the worst happens. You know, the best scenario would be getting involved when a president is manipulating the constitution, when he's extending his stay in power. If these regional bodies had enough influence on a person like that and change things at that moment before they reach to a place where we have a coup. That would be, for me, the best scenario. But as Ghana said, I totally agree with working with the people in power right now, making sure that they're ushering a new government through elections, or I don't know how that's going to happen. Peter, would you care to comment about that? What would be the fine line, the clean balance between tougher impositions of sanctions and the people who suffer because of the sanctions? Well, I'll deal with a couple of points. So on the issue of sanctions, I think it matters the type of sanctions that are leveraged here. If we're talking about sanctions that are targeted against specific people in government that inhibit their travel, inhibit their ability to gauge in diplomatic entreaties, that's not going to influence the average person, right? Obviously, the government in power are going to say, well, we can't do our job, we can't do this, we can't do that on behalf of the people. They'll make these type of arguments, but those are targeted sanctions. And I think those are appropriate because the military needs to know that they can't, and not just the military in Guinea, but anywhere needs to know that they can't just enter into politics, overthrow a government, and then get away with it without consequences. And I think right now, militaries are seeing what ECOWAS and African Union have done over the years in Egypt, in Mali, in other countries as well, where we've seen the military playing this role. And there has been little to no consequences if you succeed in your coup. Now, whether that coup is popular or not, I don't think that that matters, right? Because there's a constitutional process here. And if we acknowledge the fact that the military plays this militaristic role in politics, then we don't know where we're going to stop and limit that. And if you look at the public opinion from Afrobarometer, which is likely our best source, and I know it's a little bit dated, so it's data from 2019, it's about 50-50 in terms of trust in the president. So coming back to what I said earlier, Guinea is a polarized country. There are supporters of the current or former president, however you'd like to see President Conde in your view. So there are supporters of him. That is clear. Now that support may have declined over time, but does that justify removing a president through military means in regular ways or sending that signal? In my view, I don't think so. But Peter Anthony is this. There is nothing that says a democracy cannot be reconstituted. There is no such a thing. Because at the end of the day, it's not democracy above the will of the people. It's the will of the people prevailing. I have to interject here. How well have military governments done at instituting democracy? The data shows they don't do a good job. They come in there with promises. They talk about democracies. But authoritarian regimes are more likely to actually come out of military but, 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 let, let, me, let, me, let me say this for you. When this happened in Egypt, 
there was a democratically elected leadership that Assisi dethroned. And Assisi had massive support from Western countries, including the United States. He even exterminated thousands of lives in rubber. They killed people and nothing happened out of That was considered a victory for democracy. But I was a military guy. Some people consider it a victory for democracy. The Western society, they work with it. Working with him means that they approve of his leadership. They approve of his talk. Well, I certainly don't. And I think that issue on Egypt is quite divisive amongst those in the democracy space, because that was a fundamental move where I think, as you said, that people were too quick to sort of condemn the coup in Egypt and then quickly readjust their positions and embrace this new military government. Because you're right. Morsi was a democratically elected president in the largest turnout election that Egypt has seen in many years in an opening space that was taking place in the country in many levels. And it was completely thwarted. And again, the African Union came out, condemned the coup. We can see how Sisi's in power today. What has resulted from that imposition of power, I would argue, not so much of a democratic dispensation. The thing is that the moment people jubilate after a coup, it makes it look like the coup is legitimate, which is wrong. We don't need to get there. Because when the coup happened in Guinea, on Twitter, people were pointing fingers at Uganda. People were pointing fingers at other countries that have leaders that are democratically elected. And we have to be very careful because having a coup is not the answer to the solutions that we are looking for. Having a coup is not an answer to the solution we are looking for because it results in a lot of economic setback. People are not happy with the democracy. And we can't continue to tell people to endure sovereignness. We can't continue to tell people to endure hardship. We can't continue to tell people to endure the failures in a democracy. So people are looking for change. This is the big deal. Okay, if people are looking for change and people are not happy with democracy, it doesn't mean that coup should be the solution to that. They have to sit down and talk. They have to find the right ways to do it. Because right now, a coup happened in Egypt this year, a coup is happening in Guinea. Another coup is going to happen again. And we keep going on. And African countries are having setbacks over and over because there is so much change of government. There is no consistency in the way we do things. If we think democracy is not the right answer to African countries, we have to sit down and define what will work for us. But we haven't done that. And we are here saying that because the people are tired and because the people are not happy with the system, then coup is a solution, my brother. It's wrong. We don't have to get there. I do agree with Peter and Eva on the coups for me are not the solution. Coups don't fix anything. If anything, coups just put the country in a worse position than it was before. So for me, the question that I have is what is the alternative? Because we have seen what happened in Guinea happen over and over in so many African countries, in the Congo, in Uganda, in Zimbabwe, where president stays in power for 30 years. What is the alternative for people? Because in those instances, I don't know what the African Union or ECOWAS did to change things in a peaceful manner. Because this president will come, Eva talked about democratically led, and I'll put quotes around democratically because I don't know if the 
people who are staying in power for 30 years, are they truly democratically elected or are they just manufacturing that data just so that they can keep themselves in power? So, I mean, I've not seen a good alternative to coups. I'm not for coup. I want to know what is the alternative. I think that's a very good and brilliant question, Gloria. I'm glad, Gloria, you brought up this question, but in the interest of time, I would really like to move us along and hopefully shift this discussion to Discord. But everybody has a legitimate point because I can see the case against coups, but I can also see the case for coups because our leaders come in and overstay in power. And then if there is no retribution, they're going to stay perpetually. But at the same time, coups are not the answer. So the question is, who is to blame? What if our leaders came to power and actually kept to the terms and conditions of their stay and respected the constitution? What kind of Africa would we have? And on a lighter note, on social media, I have been seeing all these pictures of women giving free love to the soldiers who carried out the coup. I don't know if any of you have seen those. So Gloria, tell us what's been on your mind this week. Well, yeah. So on my mind this week is a story in Tanzania. So Tanzania has recently received a loan from the IMF in the amount of $567 million. So this money is for emergency support to help Tanzania finance the COVID-19 vaccination campaign and also to address some of the urgent health and humanitarian costs of the pandemic. So the reason why we are talking about this story is not the loan itself. It's not new. We know this is something that happens often in Africa and other parts of the world, even developing countries usually at times borrow money to deal with a certain crisis. But we're talking about this story because you might remember that a few months ago, Tanzania had a completely different position and different policies with regards to to COVID, right? The previous head of state, the late president, John Magafuli, he was a COVID skeptic. He denied the existence of the pandemic. He ordered that no COVID data should be made public. And he also refused vaccinations. And he was staunchly against this loan from the IMF. After his death in March, then Prime Minister Samia Suluhu took over as head of state. And she started acknowledging the COVID-19 crisis. And she launched a statewide vaccination campaign. And she got vaccinated herself publicly. She spoke about it and she encouraged everybody in the country to get vaccinated. We've heard now that the loan that was, I believe this loan was available to Tanzania under President Magafuli's leadership, but he refused. But now Tanzania has moved forward with this loan. And as part of the deal that Tanzania has made with the IMF over the loan, the government made a commitment to resume publishing COVID data. And as I said earlier, COVID data was not being published. There was a time where these public health officials were publishing data until the president, John Magafuli, ordered them to not publish anything. And so this is where we are with regards to Tanzania. And I am just very curious to hear what is your perspective on this 360-degree <laughs> turnaround in the COVID leadership in Tanzania? I mean, it shows that Mama Sam is prepared to provide leadership for the country. And it does show that sometimes when you serve under a particular leadership, it doesn't mean that you necessarily subscribe to the policies and the position of the leadership of your government. And because we've seen market departure from the policy commitment of President Samia compared to the late former president. 
And that is indicative of the fact that she's not only asserting her control, but she's also telling us that the fact that she suffered under somebody does not mean that she's going to be living under the shadow of that particular influential leadership. And uh, this is something that we need to commend that, you know, people have questioned her credential if she's able to provide leadership for the country. But this is one of the indicators that those that felt that she's not competent, that they are dead wrong because she's providing the right leadership. And more so, given what we know about the level of distrust about COVID-19 vaccine and about COVID-19 in Africa as a whole, there is a significant proportion of the African population that do not believe that COVID is real. The struggle with these things, Mama Samia is fighting against was broadly accepted by the people during the time of the former president. She's making an imprint and making very bold steps. And I think this should be encouraged. The last time we discussed about Mama Samia, about what she said about some outlets, but today we're also discussing Mama Samia for doing what is highly encouraging and uh, what should be applauded even by, by whole Africa, especially by our people in Tanzania. I think this is very indicative of somebody that's ready to take Tanzania to the next level positively. Tanzania went through a rough patch during the COVID-19 because tourism is one of the sectors that bring money into Tanzania. But because of restrictions, people were not traveling for a good chunk of 2020. So the country suffered because of that. But this money, for me, my only hope is that it will be well managed because borrowing money is never really the problem in and of itself, but the management, how it's invested, that's what is usually the main problem. And so I look forward to seeing how this development progresses from here. I believe she's done a great job in terms of this COVID-19 pandemic. I believe that she will do a great job too with this loan that the country has just received from the IMF. I think she's doing well in terms of managing COVID and also drawing attention to it and actually advocating for people to get a vaccine, which is complete departure from what her predecessor did. But my question is that must we borrow for everything? That is what I've been thinking about because during this COVID-19 pandemic, there's been a lot of borrowing going on in various African countries, always running to the IMF, even going for free vaccine to vaccinate their people. When the pandemic hit, I've not even seen major development among the African countries coming together to partner and actually create a vaccine for themselves, which for me was something that I feel like is very worrying because a lot of countries were rallying their scientists together to come up with solutions to do something about it. Then we haven't done much about it. And right now we have our leaders running to countries and seeking COVID-19 vaccine to vaccinate our people. And we still have time. But I've not heard anything, you know, I've not heard anything about us doing something internally, about us coming together to build our own scientific research centers just to create vaccines for COVID, you know. So the question is, must we borrow for everything? So in this issue of borrowing, when I read this story, I was thinking about other countries in their financial state, not just in Africa, but just broadly speaking, European countries, the United States. And one of the things you realize is everyone is borrowing during this period in time. There was and is an economic crisis that is going to continue to reverberate. And many countries are still in that period of slow growth because the Delta variant is spreading. Vaccine penetration 
amongst countries that even have the vaccine is not as high as one would like and one would expect. And so countries are borrowing, they're stimulating their economy, they're doing things that are necessary both in the short term and hopefully for the long term for themselves. So the one thing that I thought about is that as we see countries borrow and we see countries sort of restructure their economies during this period of crisis, as we see in Tanzania, they're facing a potential bank crisis to some degree as well in the countries that's precipitating this. You know, what is this going to mean long term? Are some of these debts and responsibilities going to be sustainable? Are they going to actually, in fact, change us to a new economic dispensation that's perhaps more inclusive that invests in one's people more? Those are some of the questions that I thought of. And of course, I don't think we have answers at this point, but we do see that this is a common trend, not just in Tanzania, but also elsewhere. Yeah, Eva, to your point about what are we doing to produce our own vaccine, we're more than a year into this COVID-19 pandemic. So there's some good news on that front. Egypt is just established a vaccine factory in a city close to Cairo. So Egypt will start producing the Sinovac vaccine locally. So that has started here. I think they started in June. So that's there. At least with this one country now starting to produce vaccines locally. So that's good news. Exactly good news, Gloria. Given the fact that vaccine is also being manufactured in South Africa. And that does not mean that South Africa have access to that vaccine. Because it's one thing to produce something in your backyard. It's another thing to export those vaccines elsewhere. And I think this is coming back to the question that Eva asked. How are we going to produce a vaccine? It's not going to happen any soon because it requires some critical infrastructure be in place. So the question we need to ask ourselves is that, Africans, home and abroad, what are we contemplating in terms of preparing for the next pandemic? It's not just about the next pandemic, it's about addressing some of the critical issues affecting the health sector in Africa. Without meaning that we need to mobilize resources to force our government, layers of engagement at the continental level, outside of the country, engaging government in Africa on the need for us to put critical infrastructure in place. It takes time to build this thing. And part of that critical infrastructure is getting our local education right. When our local education are fully well-funded, particularly some critical component of education, the medical component, and what have you, you know, we'd be better positioned to handle these issues because the responses about vaccine, local responses to vaccine production is also about the local institutional capacity Go to many medical labs in Africa. What is happening in these laboratories? You know, are they fully well-funded? Are they really well-supported? Do they have the necessary equipment? We don't just put this vaccine in the market. There must have been some supportive institutional arrangement in place that makes this possible. And this is why we need to have series of layers of engagement at this level. Otherwise, we'll continue to be vulnerable because it takes time and it takes sufficient political commitment, financial commitment. To make this possible. But those things are not there currently. And that is why we need to address this missing link. They are a necessary condition for us to be able to produce vaccine. Otherwise, we just become junkyards where people produce vaccine and they export it elsewhere. We've seen this in South Africa. And to me, it's about fixing the educational sector, it's about providing the right support to make this possible. On the continent. Otherwise, we'll continue to lament about when is Africa going to be able to produce this vaccine. It's not going to happen by the word of mouth. We need to do the right thing now. True. And I can hear the skeptics are saying that, but during the time of President Magafoli, he did not take the loans, but then 
Tanzania advanced into a middle-income country without those loans? Because I've seen that debate raging on social media. And some people are claiming that this lady is a stooge, a Western stooge, and Western countries are forcing us to take their money so they can maintain dominance over us. So how do you justify the loans? Should we borrow for everything, like Eva said? And I'd just like to ask Peter, what are your thoughts on this? So I think that the world is quite interdependent. And I think we don't always appreciate that. As I suggested earlier, you know, countries are taking out loans from each other. And obviously, there can be some strings attached to that. But I think what we do see is that that power asymmetry that we've seen over time is starting to lessen to some respect. It's still there, but it has lessened to some respect. We can see that in the context of African countries in terms of their cooperative approach to dealing with the European Union as well as the United States through the African Union on many different diplomatic priorities. We also see that in their engagement and cooperation when they engage with China and the like. Right. So there is this exercise of power, but we are going to see that borrowing take place. And that's just the nature of the interdependent globe. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. And it doesn't necessarily have to lead to the outcomes that we saw in the 1980s during the neoliberal policies that were completely incorrect. Just adding to what Peter said, I think in this case, borrowing is justified because as Ghana mentioned earlier, we were not prepared for the COVID-19 pandemic. So there was no money set aside for the pandemic. The country was able to function with its revenues, with the money that's coming in through tourism and all of that. But there was no money set aside for a pandemic. It took all of us by surprise. And so in addition to that, last year, as I mentioned, people were not traveling. So Tanzania lost a lot of money that they used to gain through tourism. And so the GDP went down. The country has lost a lot of revenue. And on the flip side, that the country needs a lot of money to deal with the pandemic. And so for me, that's how I view it. And I think in this case, it is justified. As long as it's used well, it's managed well, and it doesn't in the long run cripple the country's economy. Wonderful. Thank you both for that explanation. And Ghana, I just want to find out what's been on your mind. You did say that some very interesting things happened. So go at it. Yeah, you know, I'm somebody that I've been doing a lot of work on food systems. And I'm always very critical to issues pertaining to food security and how we can produce food in a way that is sustainable, for the current generation and the future generation. So one of the news items that I've been following over the week has to do with the use of insects for the production of animal feed. What I used to know is the use of insects for the production of human food, particularly protein. You know, I grew up eating some insects like caterpillar. You know, my father was a great lover of insects because there are some specific form of insects that I consider edible. And just for your information, many people may not be aware that we have 476 species of edible insects that people eat across different African countries. Because many times when people hear about people eating insects, they think that it's just only in China or some of these Asian countries. On the list of the popular insects that people eat in Africa are grasshopper, people eat cricket, people eat locusts, which causes a lot of damage to farm crops. So some of the things that people eat for the high protein content. Of course, there's a flip side to the consumption of insects. And one of the flip sides of consumption of insects is that they can lead to some severe stomach problem, a stent problem, 
in the 1950s, there was a massive problem of stomach flow in Malaysia that arose as a result of them consuming insects. So there are some complications that may arise from that. But uh, my focus today is not to discuss insects for human protein, rather the use of insects for animal feed. There is a company that has been in the news in South Africa that is raising insects for animal feed. And it's gaining a lot of traction because many people are commending them for what they are doing, raising insects for animal feed. And I really love this list because when you look at the way they are producing insects to produce protein for animal feed, you begin to realize some issues pertaining to what are the carbon input of this production system. Because the uh, majority of what they are doing, they require lesser amount of carbon foot imprint. They also require lesser amount of electricity compared to the amount of electricity required to produce animal feed, particularly for dogs, but even for feeding other forms of animal. So this is something that I really consider very, very important, more so that one of the major issues we are dealing with is the issue of climate change and how that is going to be affecting agriculture generally. So it's something that I really consider positive, more so that it's coming from Africa. So I'd like to know your thoughts about these guys. Before we share our thoughts, can we have your favorite insects to eat, Ghana? I used to eat when I was a young boy was cricket. That was a very popular <laughs> one, cricket. <laughs> I think I ate crickets too. I can't remember, but I used to enjoy grasshoppers. <laughs> I ate so many of those. Yes, the grasshoppers are tasty, but the crickets are also very, very tasty. Ghana, I agree with you on that one. I have never eaten any insects before. You are missing out. You need to come to Uganda and eat grasshoppers and white ants and crickets too. Have you eaten those Mopani worms that are popular in oh. Southern Africa? You haven't Mano. had any of those? Those are good. good. I think I've had Very them, good. but I don't, I don't like the Mopani worms. They creep me out. Oh, okay. So all of you yes. have tried some form of incense except yes. me. It is dead. All right. I don't miss it. Well, the heart doesn't weep over what the eyes exactly. have seen. <laughs> yes. <laughs> After you eat the grasshoppers, trust mm-hmm. me, you'll be hooked. But Ghana, are you serious? These flies are not meant for human consumption at some point. Ghana, before you answer this question, I have so many problems with this story. Because what I read is that the founder of this farm, he started farming flies in his bathroom. So many things wrong with this picture. I'm like, ah, I hope no human being eats those flies. Well, that was a very good question, Gloria. And, uh, you know, I'm not really aware of whether human beings are eating the flies or not. But one of the papers I read about this is that it's one of the things that uh, people are considering as a means of producing feed for animal. I'm not really aware that people are eating this kind of fly for human consumption. And uh, there are several ways that people are handling this. Even in Mali, one of the traditional means of producing feed for animal is that there's a local way that they trap termite. So they have like a small container they use in attracting termite. And, and this container, they will put some leftover of grains or some leftover of cereals, particularly the shaft to attract the termite. So when a significant proportion of the termite comes into this, they will put water into it and then they will cover it for like three weeks. That leads to mass production of the termite. In the process, it leads into the production of some things that they can use for the growth of their crop. And then they have more mass production of termite that they use in feeding the animals. So there's a way it works in Mali that they do this locally. So when I read about the South African story, it's just like building on existing ways that people are dealing with using insects to make amendments for feeding their you know, animals and then 
creating some organic input that they use in supporting their farm activities. And particularly, this is one of the coping strategies of small-scale farmers in some African countries. And that is telling us that there are ways we can build on indigenous knowledge to address some of the constraints, the productivities of African smallholder farmers. Because if they've been doing this at the local level, in the case of South Africa, this young man and his group, they are not just producing insects to feed animals, they are also producing organic materials that they sell to some countries outside of South Africa. So meaning that if they've been doing the same thing at different countries in different African countries, rather than selling these synthetic fertilizers that we don't even have the capacity to produce in Africa to them, we can work with them, take this to the next level, produce more organic materials that produce more jobs in the local economy, retaining money in the local economy. And this is more environmental friendly because they are using resources that are available. Some of the resources that are going into waste. Because when you read the story of the South African guy, he said what got him into this was because there are food waste in some places that are producing excesses. So it's been mobilizing these waste, combine them into resources that are supporting our food system. We can do better by looking in what's in Africa. And this is a challenge to scientists that are working in the food systems in Africa, that what can we take from some of these local experiments that our local farmers are doing put more scientific knowledge into this, work with them and take it to the next level. This should be an high opener for many of us that are scientists that are working in the food production spaces in Africa. Because if people have been doing this locally, then if somebody takes advantage of this, you know, local knowledge, taking it to the next level, producing, using insects to produce animal feed, and it's not exporting it, that means that we will not only be doing better locally with our agriculture, our local farmers and their local knowledge, can serve as another means of exporting some materials to European countries. And that will be bringing in more money to support our economy. I think this is a very laudable idea that other African countries should emulate because that's going to indicate it at the local level in Mali is taking place. The process that they are doing by trapping termites to also use it to produce animal feed, I think is very, very important. And I hope that other African countries can be able to copy it and start using this process to actually not only produce animal foods, but also use it in terms of the production of fertilizers, because that is something that we also need for our food production. So I think that going forward, we'll be able to make use of some of these local techniques to actually help the development and the expansion of the agriculture sector. Wonderful. Thank you, Eva. And with that, we would like to thank you for joining us today. We hope you will join us again for our next episode of Leaders of Africa's This Week. Make sure to subscribe to Leaders of Africa's This Week in your favorite podcast app and on YouTube. We are on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, and more. New episodes arrive bi-weekly on Wednesdays. Join our Discord community to continue the conversation and follow Leaders of Africa on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram for all new and great content. Until next time, bye for now.